morning, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. I uh, hope you're all having a wonderful week in the Lord. I'm excited about this morning's study. We are back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 17 and make our way all the way to chapter 3, verse 9, in a sermon entitled, Paul's Burden for the Church. There's a lot of things we can relate to here, and so I hope you've got your Bibles out and ready, and I hope you are looking forward to studying alongside our sermon this morning. Let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to read all the way to 1 Thessalonians 3, 9. The Bible says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could not endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and concerning you concerning your or establish you and encourage you, excuse me, concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning, your, uh, concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God. First Baptist Church, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you join me in praying over this word this morning? Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we, you have met with us already uh, this morning, that you have granted us grace, that you have been pleased, uh, Lord, by the songs that we've even sang, not because of anything that we've merited in your eyes, Father, but instead because you've clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. You've put a new song in our mouths, we have rejoiced in that unto you with hearts of love and, and your truth. And Father, we pray that you would make that a more and more true statement about us. That you would cause us to worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth more and more. That this word this morning that we're about to hear would work towards that end. And Father, we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, a story you well know as Cain was being asked where his brother was in Genesis chapter 4, he infamously responded to God with these words, Am I my brother's keeper? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, I ask you this morning, are you? 
Are you your brother's and sister's keeper? Our passage today is rather large and therefore it requires a rather large big idea. And I want you to follow along with this big idea as this will kind of be our outline this morning. The big idea of this passage is this. Paul and his co-workers had an earnest desire to go to the Thessalonians because of the real danger to their faith, provoking unbearable concern that compelled concrete action, which led to a timely comfort, which resulted in profound thanksgiving. Did you get all that? (laughs) It's that simple. And now what we're going to do is we're going to take that really large run-on sentence apart Uh, And that's where we're going to view our passage. That's what the passage says, though. It's what we see here. And so let's begin at the beginning. Let's start right here with Paul and his co-workers had an earnest desire to go to the Thessalonians. Paul and his co-workers had an earnest desire to go to the Thessalonians. That's what we see here in our text in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. Paul says this, He says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again, but Satan hindered us. You recall that Paul and his companions were forced to leave suddenly. Acts chapter 17 tells us that after the riots and after the threat to Jason that Paul and Silas went away immediately at night. Uh, The urgency and immediacy of their departure is clear from Acts 17.10. It says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. You didn't travel back at night back then. You didn't travel that time. You weren't hopping in a car, turning on the headlights, and cruising down the highway. You were only sent away at night if you were fleeing for your life. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were sent away suddenly, immediately at night. And therefore, we can guess that they were probably unable to make their rounds and say goodbye in the way they may have desired to. They could not go from house to house visiting all the believers in Thessalonica in order to explain to them why they were leaving, when they might be back, and how dear they were to their hearts. They were sent away immediately at night. They were forced to flee, leaving loose ends, leaving lots of questions and potentially even hurt feelings. Just imagine waking up one morning and being exceedingly excited to go and visit with the Apostle Paul to sit at his feet, continue your discipleship that you've been enjoying for several weeks with this Apostle, to learn more about the Christ and how and why he had to suffer, about how all the Hebrew Scriptures point and proclaim to this Christ, what the Gospel means and And your heart is filled with questions as you head down the street to where Paul most likely would already be up working on his making of tents and ready to receive all those who might wander and gather around and listen as he worked. To listen to him talk about what appears by all accounts to be his favorite subject, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But as you approach the place where Paul is always to be found, he is not there. It's dark, but he's not there. In fact, no one is there. You stand there wondering, what's going on? What's happening? 
Someone grabs you by the shoulder. They pull you into the alleyway and they explain, Paul's gone. Silas is, is gone. Timothy, they left. There was trouble yesterday. And I don't even know all the details yet, but it, it isn't good. Just put yourself in this story. It would be devastating. Think about the questions you'd be left with. Why did he leave? And if this message is true, if we're called to suffer, where did he go and why? The Thessalonians seem to have some of these questions that Paul wanted to address here in this particular passage. So Paul wants to assure them that though they left physically, the Thessalonians were never taken from their hearts. Paul loved them. In fact, Paul says, we were taken away from you. That verb taken away is literally the word orphaned. Now, we use orphaned as of children who were taken away or separated from their parents, but this word can be used of either. This word can be used of either children who are separated from their parents or parents who are separated from their children. And in this context, Paul is saying, you are our children and we have lost you. You've been taken away from us, ripped from us. Remember that Paul has already twice referred to himself in parental familial terms to the Thessalonians. You look at verse 7 of chapter 2, Paul says, But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And then verse 11, Paul says, As you know we, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Paul was like a mother and a father to them. They were his children. And, and he left them behind in the midst of a war zone. The persecution would be intense. So Paul carries them along in his heart. His love for the Thessalonians was sincere and profound. And in verse 19 and 20, Paul actually explains that even more. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. See, Paul here, he's, he's gushing with emotion to find and express how sincerely and deeply he loves these believers. How much he longs and desires earnestly to see them face to face. They were his children, right? They were reborn due to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he proclaimed. Yes, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing dead men to life, regenerating the heart. But it was his proclamation that brought them into the faith. He had the privilege to teach them what the Lord Jesus had said and done, who the Lord Jesus is, who they were because of the person and work of Christ. And then it was over like that. So they endeavored more eagerly to see their faces with great desire. Again, just imagine this. Imagine you have a young child and because that's the picture Paul's painting here, but because of the chaos in the city that uh, the war is, is torn, is, uh, you are separated somehow from this young child. Imagine how your heart would yearn to see them, would yearn to protect them. That's what Paul's expressing here. Would you not do everything in your power to get to that young child. And Paul is writing exactly that. We have strived, we have tried earnestly, we have desired and not just desired, but actually attempted to come and see you. I, Paul, time and again, he says multiple times. 
And this wasn't simply a sentiment for him. Like, I really wish I could make it back to Thessalonica sometime. Man, that was a swell place. I really enjoyed the people there. I'll get back there soon. No. That's not what Paul is saying. His heart is hurting. It's broken. He longs to be with them. Paul did not simply want to see them because he loved them, though that was true. But as we go back to breaking down our main idea, Paul and his co-workers had an earnest desire to go to the Thessalonians, Thessalonian believers because of the real danger to their faith. Because of the real danger to their faith. See, the baby was in trouble, facing grave danger. Paul wrote in verse 18 that Satan had hindered us. He writes in verse 5 of chapter 3 that he feared the tempter had tempted them. So if you're asking yourself, well, if If Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, if they wanted to go back to Thessalonica so bad, why didn't they? Well, Paul answers that question here in no uncertain terms. Satan hindered us. In fact, I believe that it is fair to say that their effort to return to Thessalonica was so great that only satanic oppression could have kept them from going back. Mind you, the word translated hindered here is actually a military term. It was used to describe the action of soldiers that would tear up and destroy the road to keep an enemy from approaching. So in a metaphorical sense, Satan had destroyed every possible route to Thessalonica. That's what it says. My question is, do we even have room in our theological framework for this? Do you have space for that? Look, Paul doesn't say, well, it wasn't God's will for us to return to you. Maybe next year. No, Paul wrote that they tried to go back. They tried, in fact. He continued to pray right here in this letter that the Lord would bring them back, that he would make a way, but Satan barred the way. And then, of course, the picture is a reality that Scripture introduces to us in many other places, that there is, in fact, spiritual warfare. It's real. Satan is real. Demons are real. The war that I fear we often uh, are are naively blind to, it is real. According to Paul in this passage, Satan actively and successfully hindered Paul, Silas, and Timothy from returning for at least a time. I think Gene Green, who has written a commentary on 1 Thessalonians, states it very well. He says, in this spiritual warfare, Satan is hardly an omnipotent adversary. But he is a real adversary. Well said. Paul knew that the satanic oppression was not limited to hindering them from returning. If Satan and his forces were busy hindering them from returning, then he was also most likely busy tempting the Thessalonians to abandon the faith. Divide and conquer, right? What is Satan ultimately hindering? He's hindering the word of God, the apostolic testimony, the explanation broader and broader of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, Satan hates that message. So he did not want it to continue. But Paul assumes and puts into words that Satan not only hindered them from returning, but he also might be tempting them to abandon the faith. He knew the tempter would be tempting his precious children in the faith. The temptation Paul had in mind was most likely persecution, but the tempter also often brings temptations in the form of false teaching. Listen, these two, suffering and false teaching, form the most basic 
and may I say highly effective tools of our adversary. Suffering and false teaching. It's the exact picture that we see in Revelation 13. The beast who comes out and brings destruction. He comes out of the ocean of chaos, suffering and affliction. But then he's followed by the beast of the land who speaks like a lamb. False teaching. Both are equally deadly. Suffering, affliction, and persecution are like the violent, tempestuous waves. They can sink the boat of faith before it reaches the shore of glory. But often fair weather is no better as the tempter uses the subtle currents of false teaching to lead people away from the true and living God. So whether your boat is being beaten by the waves or suffering, or you are aimlessly drifting without the right compass, the danger is real. And Paul knew this. This is why back to our main idea, Paul and his co-workers had an earnest desire to go to the Thessalonians because the danger was real to their faith, provoking unbearable concern it was provoking unbearable concern don't miss this paul was sincerely concerned that those who had professed to trust in christ might fall away because of the afflictions and persecutions they were facing don't discount the agony that paul himself felt due to his genuine concern for the church and for all churches in that matter. In fact, we read this a couple weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. After, mind you, a litany of afflictions and sufferings that Paul had suffered. He says the cherry on top, not because it's the least significant, but actually probably because it's the most significant. He writes this. He says, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? There is no lack of true, deep, and abiding concern in Paul. They were genuinely anxious for the infant congregation in Thessalonica. And the concern they felt for them, friends, it became unbearable. That's why Paul would write in verse 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it be good to left in Athens alone. He says in verse 5 as well, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Paul and his co-workers could no longer bear the thought that the Thessalonian believers might have fallen away. They could not endure it. That ultimately, after the proclamation of the gospel, those who had actually professed Jesus Christ ultimately would be tempted to abandon that faith. Now, mind you, uh, that is Paul's primary concern and fear here. His primary concern was not that they would commit some sin, but rather that they would abandon the faith. Paul didn't simply merely fear a moral lapse. He'll eventually address that. Here, he was unbearably concerned that they may not continue in the faith. Again, I fear that this is hard for us to value as real and genuine. See, we might be tempted to expect Paul to write something like, Dear Thessalonian believers, sometimes I get anxious when I think about you, but then Timothy and Sylvanus remind me that God is sovereign and everything that happens is part of his good and perfect plan. So I stopped worrying about you. The devil may attack you, but God is sovereign and he will not allow you to fall away. Don't worry about those who fall away because you know what? They didn't really belong to us anyway. He doesn't write that. 
It's nowhere on his radar screen. He is deeply troubled that some might be led away, and it disturbs him deeply. Why don't we have the same concern for those who are left and are right? Those who once have been among us and are no more. Green, again, rightly notes, he says, the possibility of apostasy was a clear and present danger. And so Paul and his co-workers had an earnest desire to go to the Thessalonians because of the real danger to their faith, provoking unbearable concern that compelled concrete action. That compelled concrete action. Look at the beginning again of First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, chapter three. Paul says in verse one, "Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it be good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning the faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are appointed to this." And then go down to verse five. For this reason, when I can no longer endure it. I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Notice, Paul says twice that they took action when they could no longer endure it. They were compelled to concrete action by this unbearable concern. Their desire was to be with them. And it was so earnest. The danger was so real and their concern was so unbearable that they had to do something. So... They sent Timothy. So just quickly, why Timothy and not Silas or Paul? I mean, if Timothy's able to go back to Thessalonica, why would Silas not be able to or Paul? Well, if you notice, if you reread the Acts account, Acts 17, Timothy is hardly ever mentioned. Who is flogged publicly and put in prison? Paul and Silas. Who's forced to leave immediately at night in Thessalonica? Paul and Silas. Remember, Timothy is Paul's young protege. He's probably doing a lot more listening and learning than speaking publicly. He's not out front. And for that reason, he most likely could infiltrate back into Thessalonica without stirring up too much trouble. And one might also ask, well, why wait until their concern became unbearable then before they sent Timothy? If that's not the case, why not send Timothy when they get to Berea? Well, because I truly believe Paul when he says that he tried earnestly to get back to them time and time again. And I assume that because he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he actually really desired to go back. That he probably hoped that he was going to be able to. And then when he finally realized that he wasn't and he could bear it no more, he endure it no longer, he sent Timothy instead. And I also want to appreciate that there was real danger in sending Timothy back. Remember, this was Timothy's first solo trip as a gospel minister. He had to leave the relative safety of the group and travel alone or in a much smaller group. Dividing up would be risky. Uh, Then there was the reality that Athens lied 220 miles south of Thessalonica by land. It's a trip approximately of 10 to 11 days. It wasn't just cruising down the highway and back and... and, uh, on a church, uh, at the church, not to mention he's traveling back into the hornet's nest. Think about it. Uh, Paul couldn't go back, not because he was concerned because people might yell at him. That's not what kept him out. It was a real threat to life and limb. Would it be any less so than Timothy who is proclaiming the same message as Paul? 
No. Timothy might have been a smaller target, friends, but he was still no less of a target. But at the risk of life and limb and persecution, it was all eventually outweighed by the potential cost of doing nothing. So Timothy is sent to learn about their faith and strengthen it. Uh, Paul wanted to find out if they continued in their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Was their faith genuine? Was it persevering faith that stood against the violent waves of persecution that crashed against it? Paul could not stand not knowing how this baby church fared in his absence. And so what did he do? He took concrete action. Sending Timothy to them to find out if they stood in the faith and to establish and encourage them in the faith. The verb there, to establish, refers to the process of strengthening one's faith, shoring it up against apostasy and persecution. Timothy was sent to add sandbags to the levee or more concrete to the foundation. And courage really says a similar thing. The word encourage can also be translated exhort. It's simply helping one stay on the course to cling to Christ so that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. So Timothy's mission was to find out they still stood in the faith to strengthen and encourage the Thessalonian believers that they might be able to stand firm in the midst of trials, sufferings, and afflictions that they had faced. And listen, I know I'm preaching to the choir for the most part here, but this whole passage should strike a deadly blow to the heart of any ministry that promotes a tag-them-and-bag-them attitude towards evangelism. You just can't promote that in light of what Paul feels and experiences toward this young church. He is feeling personally responsible for their growth in the gospel. He wasn't putting notches on his belt because he got them to pray a prayer. He took ownership of their faith. They were his children and he was responsible to shepherd them. So Paul and his co-workers had an earnest desire to go to the Thessalonians because of the real danger to their faith, provoking unbearable concern that compelled concrete action, which led to a timely comfort. Now catch this. If Timothy stayed in Thessalonica for a minimum of a week before traveling from Thessalonica all the way back to Corinth, which is further away than Athens, most likely his trip would have taken a month, roughly. If he stayed one week, a month. So so when Paul and his co-workers could no longer endure it, they sent Timothy and then had to endure it for another month before they actually got any word. Not only if whether the believers in Thessalonica still stood, but whether Timothy would be received by them and return safely. But friends, the wait was well worth it. Look at me with uh, verses 6 and 8 of chapter 3. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love... That you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. This passage actually borders a bit on ironic. Think about it. Paul and his companions earnestly desired to see the Thessalonians because of the real danger to their faith, provoking unbearable concern that compelled concrete action. So Timothy was sent to strengthen and encourage, and now Timothy is returned, and it's the apostles who are strengthened and encouraged in the midst of their affliction. That's glorious. It's the faith, love, and hope of the Thessalonians that is bolstered and strengthened the ministry of the Apostle Paul. 
Like a parent who has just received news that the child they feared dead was alive and well, Paul and Silvanus were deeply comforted. Remember the context. Remember all that Paul had gone through. Paul so far been recently beaten publicly, shamed, imprisoned, driven out of multiple towns, in a very unresponsive ministry in Athens, and has now arrived in Corinth, not even knowing if any of his efforts produced any fruit whatsoever. What a great encouragement to hear that one of these churches was alive and well, not merely surviving, but thriving in the midst of that persecution. In the first chapter, we saw that the word has went out about their faith through Macedonia and Achaia. He has received this word from Timothy himself. People are talking about their faith. What fantastic news. In fact, Paul says that this news, the comfort that they received, this timely comfort is almost like a resurrection. That's what he says in verse 8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Paul's saying, we're dying inside for you. It was like being given over to death for their sake, but with the news of their faith, their love, their hope, new life has been breathed into our ministry. And so back to our main idea, for this reason, Paul and his co-workers had an earnest desire to go to the Thessalonians because of the real danger to their faith provoking unbearable concern that compelled concrete action, which led to a timely comfort, which resulted in profound thanksgiving. This is the third time in this short letter that Paul breaks out of thanksgiving to God. Paul is moved to thank the ultimate cause for all of his joy. That God had chosen the Thessalonians and called them into his kingdom and glory. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had labored to establish them in the faith. The Thessalonians had stood firm in their faith. But the debt for all of this ultimately was the God who worked in them to persevere through their faith. The question in verse 9 is actually a rhetorical question. Paul says, For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? He says, What thanks can we render? And what's implied here is that the debt that is owed to God, uh, I'm sorry, that what, what is implied here is thanks is the debt that is owed to this God who made them stand firm in the midst of persecution. Thanksgiving is the debt that is owed. And yet, how can we possibly offer enough thanksgiving for what has been accomplished through you for your sake? And what exactly, by the way, drives the thanks that Paul would give? It's explicitly stated here in our text. In a word, it's joy. Joy over and for the Thessalonians. Paul says, with all the joy with which we rejoice... There's purposeful redundancy there. These men were rejoicing in their joy because their children in the faith were not only surviving, but they were thriving. That's it. That's what we find in this passage. We could stop now and it would be deeply encouraging to us, but we could also ask the question, so what? I mean, that's sweet, but the Apostle Paul is not here and we are not the Thessalonians. The legitimate question asked, so what? Well, I think, I think this is a love worth imitating. Listen to me, this is a love worth imitating. We can take each piece of this and apply it to us. Our earnestly desiring to be with one another, 
to encourage one another, to protect one another, because we know that the danger is real. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's not omnipotent, but he is formidable. The danger is real to your brother and sister, to your left and to your right, to me. So our concern should be great. The spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters in Christ should be one of, if not the greatest, concerns you have. Think about your concerns. Think about the things that you pray for. Do our prayers reflect this overwhelming concern that my brother or sister might continue to stand in the faith? Do we believe the danger is real and is our concern sufficiently strong? Think about it, church. In the end... What else will matter? (laughs) When you stand before Christ, what will be your joy and your crown of glory, your crown of boasting? Will it be your pension? Will it be your, your clean house? Will that be a joy and your crown of glory before the Lord on the day he returns? Your manicured lawn? Your educated or well behaved kids? Your well rested body? What will be your joy, your glory, and your crown of boasting when the Lord returns? Go get that little green directory and look through it. That's it. It's one another. It's all of those whom you, through the proclamation of the gospel, are allowed to, by God's grace, bring into the faith, whom you walk with or bring back in times of falling. It is all those whom you encourage, edify, stand with, and love. Those would be your crown of glory in the Lord. Those will be your joy. That should change the way we live, church family. Our action must be concrete. It's not just enough to think, you know, I didn't see Brother Bob here today. That's odd. And then just go on your merry way. Or for you who are quarantined at home to think, you know, I haven't called so-and-so in a really long time. I wonder what they're uh, doing now. That won't cut it. We need to have concrete action. A a, a continual call, a text, a visit, an edifying word from the Lord, sharing scripture, reading scripture to one another. Don't just think pleasant thoughts and hope the Lord will do something for those we see drifting away or being battered by the waves. This is war, folks. It's a fight for the very souls of those who claim to love Jesus. And so we must act, we must pray, we must call, we must visit, we must exhort, we must encourage, and we must fight to the very last breath for every last one of our church members. Uh, Let us find our joy in the perseverance in our brothers and sisters. Let us get the directory out and find great joy in standing in the faith for those whom we love. So I ask again, as I asked at the outset, are you your brother's keeper? Are you aware of the danger? Are your brothers and sisters your joy and reason for thanksgiving to our God? Are you your brother's keeper? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that indeed Jesus Christ is the perfect elder brother
who is our keeper for those who belong to him. Father, we pray that we might be more faithful in imitating him, that we would be faithful in imitating the love that the Apostle Paul possesses in this passage we've seen today, that we might rightly recognize the danger, Lord, that we might indeed have a sincere and unbearable concern for our brothers and sisters that moves us to action. Father, would you please help us? That we would not be guilty in responding to you. Lord, am I my brother's keeper? Father, forgive us when we have done so in this way. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Church family, we love you. If there's anything we can do for you, please call, text, encourage. Um, we hope this sermon has been encouraging to you and uh, easy applicable. We love you. God bless.